Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. You know, we're going to ease into things today. We're going to we're going to wade into uh, some more hot water. We're going to start in some cooler water, less prickly water. That means we're starting with Microsoft. Uh, you've heard about their acquisition of um, Bethesda. Uh, this video game studio. So Microsoft did this acquisition, uh, multi-billion dollar acquisition. Uh, they create Doom and you know other popular games. You know this is what we call a marquee strategy. We we've seen the strategy deployed many instances. What you do is you lock down a uh, highly sought after part of either demand or supply. Many times it's on the supply side. Uh, so they're locking down a you know a strong supply side asset. This um, Game Developer Studio, we saw them do this with, uh, you know, with Halo and and other games in the past that that Microsoft has made exclusive to their platform. This is a, a tried and true strategy for them. They use their balance sheet. They spend a bunch of money. What was interesting, though, with the acquisition was uh, Satya, CEO of Microsoft, said that they would still honor the commitments that uh, Bethesda had made with PlayStation. So. Why this is all happening now is PlayStation and Xbox are coming out with their next generation consoles. Xbox is investing a lot in a, um, a pure, entirely subscription-based offering. So you can get the hardware subscription. You can do the Game Pass uh, and get access to like 100 different games for free if you pay a monthly subscription fee between $5 to $15 a month. And if you want to get a new Xbox you'll pay up to $35 a month and you'll get a new Xbox and the game package and the whole deal, right? Awesome. Uh, so Microsoft's going all in on the subscription strategy concept. So to do that, they, you know, their video game release schedule for the fall was kind of light. I think the Halo, you know, reboot was uh, delayed. And so their, you know, their production schedule, their release schedule is lacking a little bit. And boom, they come out of the gates heavy with this acquisition. Uh, weird thing, though, is they this uh, video game company had made commitments to PlayStation to give them preferred access to a couple titles that they were releasing uh, to PlayStation. Microsoft is still honoring those deals. Kind of peculiar. Um, but obviously, if they were to break their uh, contractual agreements with PlayStation, that would severely hurt um, uh, the the impact of their investment on this business they just spent billions of dollars for. So, you know, it's not always just, boom, buy the thing. And, you know, I've just bought a business for billions and billions of dollars. And that business was valued on income coming from PlayStation. This is going to need to be, the impact of this is really a much longer term thing. Although they do have a somewhat soft uh, video game schedule to release at launch. You know, hopefully this will make an impact on the gamers to say, oh, well, over time, uh, you know, Doom and other games, well, Xbox is going to get better access to those or priority features or whatever it is. They're going to get like favored nation status on Xbox versus uh, not so much on 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 PlayStation. Oh, um, I remember now uh, like Legends of Morrowind, I think, is the big game, which I used to play way 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 back in the day the the interesting thing with this um with with this push is you know let's look at fortnite right fortnite 
is doing, Fortnite did $1.8 billion in revenue in 2019. Fortnite is free. Game is completely free. That's $1.8 billion spent on like cloaks and clothes and, you know, gear for your character, which makes absolutely zero impact on how good your character plays the game, right? This stuff does absolutely nothing for your performance in the game. It's purely aesthetics. That concept has been around for ages. It's called freemium. Fortnite did not start out on mobile. Mobile games really introduced this concept of freemium gaming. And this chart here, I think, is really exemplifies what I'm getting at. This is worldwide revenue generated by free-to-play games uh, in 2019. So freemium, right? So if it's free, where are they making this money? This is $64 billion in 2019 made by freemium video games on mobile. Um, that's $64 billion spent on all these, you know, buy clothes for your character or, you know, you buy like gold so that you speed through the levels faster or whatever in the game. PC is in the middle, $21 billion. Consoles, $1.6 billion. The subscription thing is nice from Microsoft, but clearly the trend here is, right? I mean, Fortnite, one point. Eight or one point nine billion dollars, twenty nineteen. Okay, hmm. um, you know Fortnite was really uh, a PC and a console game first, much more so before it was on mobile. So you got a lot of that money clearly coming from consoles like Xbox and PlayStation. You know, maybe maybe this subscription thing is 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 a way to help get more freemium going with these console game developers because it's saying well hey you know you're not going to get the 60 dollars like fifa right 60 dollars for uh getting fifa um and then every year there's a new version of fifa or nfl nba etc so um users are going to get access to all these games you're going to get a much smaller amount of revenue for just access to play the game but maybe they're trying to push these game developers into a freemium model that would be um, the only way I could see this, you know, these two trends colliding, right? It's it's saying, well, for a gamer paying, say, $10 a month, $120 a year, that's the equivalent of basically buying two, two of the like primo tier one games, right? Which are usually 60 bucks. So for two games purchases a year, you now get to play like 100 games. The only way the economics to me of that makes sense is if we're going to see a much bigger trend of freemium pricing in these games. And maybe Microsoft is doing this as a way to to help still give some check to the game developer, right? Um, but then to get these game developers to say, okay, we got to figure out this freemium thing. How do we do that? Otherwise, you know, the math, the math just doesn't add up. So that's my theory on what we'll see is we're going to see more freemium on console and hopefully the subscription thing from Microsoft is a way to help kind of grease the wheels for their game developers to be more pro freemium. Um, Cause that's essentially what this is. It's kind of like a gated freemium, right? It's you pay five to $15 a month and then you're going to get a bunch of freemium. That that's my guess. I don't think these games are going to be able to just take, you know, a 10th of the revenue um, and and make that up because they get such huge additional volume numbers, right? That would be the theory as well. Because it's a lower barrier, I'm going to get a lot more usage of players. Well, okay, great. But that in and of itself is not going to make up the money I think that you're getting at $60 a game title. That's my theory. 
we'll see. See if it comes true or not. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Microsoft is apparently not done with their acquisitions and they're actually looking to be even more acquisitive with one of the top executives um, mentioning Japan. So Japan is Sony, that's PlayStation, that's their backyard, that's, that's home court. So it would be a big deal if Microsoft bought a Japanese game developer you know, right in their backyard and, and try to really penetrate that. I mean, Japan is all Sony. It's all PlayStation, right? I mean, Xbox penetration there is um, probably next to nothing. So, well, that, that would be really interesting if, if, if we'll see how aggressive they want to get with this. Section 230. Uh, we've talked about Section 230 so many times on the show. I'm not going to rehash it. Maybe we'll link to a, a prior description of what Section 230 is. What has now come out is that the DOJ is looking at kind of piercing this, this shield, this liability shield in Section 230, which treats platform content platform businesses as not being liable for the content put on their site, um, but still giving content platforms the ability to moderate the content on the site, which was originally designed around, you know, basically like child pornography. And now the interpretation of what is offensive content has just completely uh, left any practical interpretation of it, which I'm going to get to in a second. So the idea is, okay, well, if we remove some of the protection provided to content platform tech monopolies, through 230, then, you know, these, um, these tech companies will not be able to, to regulate or moderate, um, and basically alter the content, right? We've talked a lot about the two biggest gripes of producers on platforms. Honestly, this is universally across pretty much every type of platform is one of them. And we spoke about this with Benedict Evans last week on the show is being unfairly uh, negatively uh, penalized by the platform, right? So I'm a producer. I could be driving on Uber. I could be selling on Amazon. I could be a website on Google search. I could be a content creator on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. And the platform takes unilateral negative action against me, my account, my inventory, my posts, you know, or, or content in this case for content platforms. And I have no say. I can't do anything, right? Or they ban me from the platform and I can't do anything. Um, we've seen many figures like this get banned, which I'm going to touch on in a second. These producers need protection. Okay. This isn't just about content platforms. This is about the whole universe. When you have a tech platform monopoly, producers are the first people to get penalized and taken advantage of by the platform. Tim O'Reilly, we had him on the show a few weeks ago, had this exact conversation. Pro platforms at monopoly stage take advantage of producers, not consumers. Um, so how do you protect producers, right? And we were talking about that with uh, Benedict last week. So content platforms have this liability shield and basically have, you know, no barrier to um, uh, uh, penalize content creators on their platform, even if, you know, the content is, is frankly just not inappropriate or, or it might be inappropriate, but it should still be allowed to be put out there because of this thing called free speech. Um, and so the DOJ is looking at this and you know what? I am fine with this approach. I am fine with this approach. I've talked about a variety of other approaches that they could have taken, but here's the one caveat for this approach. And we've seen this in Europe. We've seen this with GDPR. If this 
action that the DOJ is looking at taking is applicable to all tech startups, all content platforms. They will have failed at what they're trying to do, right? The problem is with tech monopolies. The book. Right here. What's the name? Modern Monopolies. When you get monopolies status, you take advantage of producers. Uh, it doesn't mean you need to break up the company, but it needs, means you need to put protections in for the producer, right? So if this is a way of doing it and saying, hey, if you inappropriately take advantage and, 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 and silence or moderate uh, producers posting content onto a content platform, you won't get your 230 protection on that. Okay, that might work. Problem is when you have this law, which is applicable to all content platforms. Now, when you weaken these protections, if you weaken the protections for every tech company, including the startups, which are trying to compete against the monopolies, you have now just helped the monopolies. The single thing that you were trying to uh, correct, which is monopoly power, you have now just enabled. And we saw this with GDPR because GDPR came out and said, oh, here are all these privacy restrictions uh, with tech monopolies. You know, everyone, you're just taking advantage of everyone's data. We need to protect everyone's data. GDPR. Well, GDPR was applied to not just every tech company, but every business in Europe. And GDPR is an absolute nightmare. Why is GDPR an absolute nightmare? Because GDPR put all these rules and fines and penalties in place about how to protect consumer information and data. And guess who has the best technology and the best tools and data to comply with that law? The tech monopolies. And guess who doesn't? Uh, uh, British Airways, which got fined. I think uh, Marriott got fined, like 40 million euros or something. Um, and tech startups. And so now incumbents and tech startups need to divert resources to comply with GDPR. Oh, and guess what? Facebook and Google have infinite resources and are more than happy. I mean, they just have extra engineers, right? It's like, I've got 2,000 extra engineers. Um, Google literally has made their own version of Salesforce just because they didn't want to use Salesforce. I, it's not even public. You can't use it. It's not even part of like Google Cloud apps you know, capability. It's just their own CRM that they custom built. And they've got like an extra thousand engineers. So they had to give them stuff and they didn't want Salesforce to have their data on who they're selling to. So they made their own Salesforce. These companies just have, oh, like an extra thousand engineers and they got to give them stuff to do. So great. We got these GDPR regs. Okay. Let me take like 50 engineers that were working on our own version of Salesforce and have them comply with GDPR. Meanwhile, everyone else that actually has somewhat finite resources, like literally every other company besides the tech monopolies, just now had to divert resources away from their product roadmap, whatever other stuff they were working on. And that severely hampers their ability to innovate and compete with, guess who? Tech monopolies. Okay, see my point here? This action by the DOJ could be good if they limit it to tech monopolies, right? If this is a carve out, if they're saying, hey, 230 is not going to provide full protection to Facebook and Google. And, um, you know, I actually think Twitter doesn't have monopoly status. So I would just go as far as Facebook and Google if I was being, you know, conservative. 
um, and not uh, too liberal with my you know definition of who is a monopoly. But let's just say Facebook and Google. If this applies just to Facebook and Google, wonderful. You've won. Job well done. This will help. This will help protect producers. It will. If this now applies to every tech company that has a content platform business model, you've now done way more damage than good. It's not even close how much damage you've done. Now, every tech startup that's trying to do a content platform I mean, you, you just killed off their whole business. Now investors are going to be so much more nervous to want to invest in that business because now they could all get sued and lose their investment. Now the product engineers and the product uh, managers, you know, now just have to divert all these resources to like content curation and moderation when they're just trying to get scale or or monetization going, right? And oh, and by the way, like Facebook and Google could probably go fund lawsuits through some, you know, snake hole third party, uh, you know, nonprofits or something to just go and sue all these smaller competitors. And here's like $500 million. Just go sue our smaller competitors, right? Like wonderful. Best use of money they could do with $500 million. That stuff will happen. Unless you regulate, unless you limit what this is applicable to. Point in case GDPR, post GDPR, Google and Facebook have a larger share of digital advertising in Europe than pre-GDPR. Why? Again, same thing. Facebook and Google had the best technology tools and data to comply with GDPR, which meant that more of the advertisers not wanting to violate GDPR gave their money to Facebook and Google. I'm not making it up. I literally can't make it up. I've been talking about this for over a year now. That is the caveat. That is the slippery slope here. This needs to be specific to tech monopolies. Can't make that point enough. Now, who will this help protect? I've, I've made the point many times. You know, these content platforms need to be more open than closed. These content platforms are much more closed than they should be. These content platforms, as a result, are um, penalizing producers, whether those are content creators on a Facebook, YouTube. YouTube, I would include in this, by the way, but that's part of Google. Um, content creators on Facebook, YouTube. Um, uh, websites on Google search and so on and so forth. And, and let's give some examples. I'm not getting into the partisan stuff here, right? This guy, Scott Atlas. Um, he's with the Hoover Institute, which is at Stanford university. And he's also, uh, the white house is one of the white house's kind of doctors on COVID. And you can see here, YouTube took down a June 23rd interview that Scott Atlas did with his employer. Stanford's Hoover Institution, highly reputed kind of think tank and innovation center, because it contradicts the World Health Organization or local authorities' medical information about COVID-19. This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about, right? This is the kind of stuff where you say, Section 230 was put into place to prevent child pornography and overly aggressive, hateful speech or harassing, you know, speech and that kind of stuff. This is a well-reputed doctor actually on the White House, uh, you know, doctor staff at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And YouTube is taking down his stuff because the WHO doesn't like it. This is um, counter to the value prop of platforms. This is the kind of producer protection that is needed, right? So could, could limiting Section 230 protection now make YouTube a liable uh, publisher 
for, you know, infringing on Scott Atlas's rights or something like that. I don't know. Maybe um, it's not how I would approach solving this problem, but, uh, you know, it could help. It could help. We, we got to see. No one really knows exactly what would happen in the courts or so, like, what is this going to do? Um, ideally, what it would do is make the the tech monopoly content platforms um, uh, uh, take down less stuff and be less penalizing to content creators, right? To be more open as opposed to more closed. Ideally, that would be the outcome if you limit this Section 230 dilution to tech monopolies, right? This is a good example. Another good example is uh, this lady, the um, uh, Chinese virologist, Dr. Li Mingyan, uh, who escaped out of Hong Kong. God forbid, I don't know what happened to her family or thing. Escaped out of Hong Kong, was working in the virology labs in China and Hong Kong, was working with the top COVID experts in Asia. And um, this stuff, her content, her interviews, have been heavily censored. Her Twitter profile has been banned off of Twitter because, you know, this runs counter to what's appropriate. I mean, it's a joke. No one even understands really what's going on with COVID. And you can't have a conversation. You can't let this lady express her opinion. I mean, she she fled China. Um, guarantee her loved ones and other friends back in China are being, unfortunately, uh, penalized for her actions. And um, and and now American uh, content platform companies are supposed to be about opening up information and sharing information, helping people communicate and collab. You can't talk about this. I mean, actually, this is reminiscent of what um, China did to censor doctors and officials in Wuhan to communicate with each other on WeChat. Does this not ring the same bell um, of this just big brother uh, regulating what's appropriate, what you can and can't talk about, where you had all these Wuhan doctors and health professionals trying to communicate with each other over WeChat. They got monitored. They got pulled into the secret police's rooms. They got threatened. They got, um, you know, their, their families penalized and in trouble. Uh, and here, people get banned and taken off of Twitter um, or, or their videos taken down off of YouTube or elsewhere. Um, Facebook, I'm going to get to in a second, because they're talking about something which, you know, which the almighty WHO disagrees with, who has changed their opinion on COVID like 10 different times since Sunday. This is not the ethos of platforms. Now, Twitter, honestly, they're much smaller. And I am much more pro-competition and capitalism and free markets to say Twitter should be in the Section 230 ban, even though I think Twitter is completely off their rails and has completely gone against the ethos of platforms and open ideas and communication. They, I don't think, frankly, fit monopoly status. And so therefore, I would really focus this on Facebook and Google. Last topic here. Um, this article came out about Facebook, poor Zucky. Um, Zuckerberg um, is, you know, his wonderful employees have leaked yet more information and calls that he had inside the book. Um, and um, this is good. These, these, this is what I wanted to highlight. 
Actually, I wonder if I can get the audio. Yeah, I, I do have audio. I've seen a bunch of comments internally that, that, I, that I have to say bothered me a bit um, that basically ask whether Joel uh, can be in this role or can be doing this role um, on the basis of the fact that he is a Republican um, or has uh, beliefs uh, that, that are more conservative um, than the average uh, employee of the company. And, and I have to say that I, I find that line of questioning um, to be uh, very troubling. Um, you know, in, in, my, in my work with, with Joel, that I found him to be, um, he's, he's very rigorous and principled in his thinking. So this guy is like their head of public policy, and I guess he used to work for Bush many years ago. And the employees didn't like the fact that Joel worked for a Republican president, and now he's doing public policy stuff at Facebook. Uh, here, Verge says, the controversy over Kaplan highlighted a growing and seemingly intractable gap within Facebook between the values of its more pro progressive workforce and those of its user base at large. One of the things that we talk about a little bit less inside the company is that there also the, the population out there uh, in the community we serve um, tends to be, on average, ideologically, a little bit more conservative um, than our than our employee base. Um, maybe a little is, is, is an understatement. Um, and and I, I just think it's important inside our company that if we want to actually do a good job of, of, of serving people and, and just even taking into account that there are different views on different things, um, and that if someone disagrees with with a view, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that that they're that they're hateful or have bad intent. This is hilarious, right? Because what you've heard in the media is that Facebook is pro conservatives, and my position on Facebook, just like Google, is they censor too much information, right? And I just gave you example of completely nonpartisan examples, health. COVID related things, right? Nothing they're saying in those statements is telling people that COVID is cured, like the Brazilian president. I still think that should have been published, but COVID is cured. It's fine. You can go outside and it's fine. That's not what either of those examples, Scott Atlas or the Chinese virologists are saying. Uh, if they were wrong, is not putting people's health at risk. It's just that those comments by them say the origins of, of COVID and whether it came from a, a wet market because of bats or a Chinese lab, which the Chinese lab was like 20 kilometers outside of the wet market. I'll let you connect the dots. I know exactly where I stand on this. Yeah, the whole bat thing, just way too convenient. Anyway, that stuff, it's not partisan. It's just saying, what, you know, what are, are you going to allow freedom of thought on the platform or not? This is getting to the partisan stuff here, what Zuckerberg is talking about. And I thought this was hilarious where he was saying, uh, uh, you know, the community we serve tends to be on average a little bit more conservative. And then he said, maybe a little is an understatement. So I looked it up. It's actually really easy to go find this. Let's see how liberal or conservative are the tech monopolies. What do you think? Okay. Um, so by looking at employee donations, what time period is this? This article came out in July 2020. And um, they looked at employee donations, uh, I guess, over a recent time period here. So Netflix is 98% to Democrat. 
NVIDIA, Adobe is 93% Democrat. IBM is 90% Democrat. Salesforce is 89% Democrat. Google is 88% Democrat. Microsoft, 85% Democrat. Apple, 84% de Democrat. PayPal, 84. Uh, Amazon, 77. Facebook, 77. And there's other ones on here. I'm just highlighting the platforms on here. Popular vote was 48% Democrat, 46% Republican. Um, much closer than 7723, which is where Facebook is clocking in at. And you ask yourself, well, how has this been going uh, in the past few years? Has it gotten better or worse? So in 2016, this article from Newsweek, this is on July 4th also. Uh, in 2016, 68% of donations from workers at the largest U.S. tech companies went to Democrat members. That number increased to 79% during 2018 midterms and now is at 84% in the year of 2020. So it's been getting worse. Why has it been getting worse? I don't know if just more donations have been going um, or you know, conservatives have been uh, hired less or have been pushed out, but I don't know. That that's a sixteen point differential in in you know in the other in the other direction towards the more liberal direction as opposed to the more balanced direction. So clearly, there is a lot of partisanship inside of these tech monopolies, and so clearly, when you hear the rhetoric that Facebook um, is pro conservatives, where do you think that sentiment comes from? It comes from the seventy seven percent of Democrat donors inside of Facebook who want to regulate conservative voices more on social media, who don't like the fact that this VP of public policy used to work with President Bush. So um, if anything, Facebook needs to do less censorship, whether it's on partisan political posts or Posts in general, like the health posts I'm highlighting here around COVID, the origins of COVID, which you know what? We don't know the answer to. And no one's, if anyone, if no one can ask the hard questions about where it came from, how are we ever going to get to the bottom of where it came from? If we just go with the story that came out of China, literally like a week after the thing was identified, oh, it's from bats. And everyone just says, oh, well, it's from bats. And China said it's from bats. And the WHO said it's from bats. And Twitter doesn't allow. And YouTube doesn't allow. And Facebook doesn't allow anyone to post anything otherwise. What's the point? What's the point of having the content platforms? If that's the case, yeah, get rid of them and start all over. Hopefully the Section 230 stuff, if limited to the tech monopolies, Twitter's gone. That's not a tech monopoly and they're too far gone anyway. Funny. The Twitter stuff wasn't in those articles, but we'll see. The last thing here, which I thought was was pretty funny on this uh, this leaked thing from Zucky, um, was was this. I want to make sure that people here recognize that um, the majority of the negative sentiment uh, that we have faced, and measured by write-ins from our community is actually generally coming from more conservative-leaning folks who are concerned about censorship. You see that? It's not Facebook's users that are saying, hey, Facebook, you're too pro-conservative. It's the employees that are saying, Facebook, we're too pro-conservative. It's the partisan employees at Facebook that are complaining about executives being conservative um, and are complaining about them not silencing and regulating conservative posts more. 
I try not to get into the politics stuff, but, but the data is very clear and you're hearing it from the mouth of the founder and CEO of, you know, what the media wants you to think versus what the community is actually saying. So, um, it's really interesting. I, I, you know, I give credit to Zuckerberg because he come, I mean, I, Zuckerberg's not a conservative. Uh, I, well, I don't know. I don't know his political affiliation, but at least out of all the tech CEOs, tech monopoly CEOs, he has taken the stands the best. Now, as I will say, Facebook has more work to do to be more open, but all things considered compared to how the rest of the tech CEOs have acted in terms of wanting to have a more neutral environment amongst their ecosystem and, and how they police, um, you know, producers, uh, certainly amongst the content platforms that are here, they've clearly been the most open of the con- dominant content platforms, uh, monopolies, right? That's for sure. It's very easy to point that out. But, you know, frankly, I, I, I think we're too hung up on trying to regulate everything and control how people think. I, I think a lot of it just goes back to, you know, Americans are smart. <laughs> they can make up their own mind. You know, you want to have the Chinese virologists come on YouTube and say how China made the virus in their lab and that they deliberately released it upon the world? Let her say it. What's so wrong? People can make up their own opinion. They've got a mind. They can think for themselves. That's what this country was founded on. And uh, for some reason, since these platforms have so much power, people want the platforms to exert that power to shape the um the information that people receive and they don't want it to be open they want it to be controlled and closed and they want to have a say on what the platforms allow and don't allow well you know what that's not america it's not in our civil liberties and eventually it will change eventually it will become more open I'm confident in that. We're still figuring out exactly how to do it. But it will come around. Uh, Things are getting crazy because of the elections, but it will come around to be more open. I believe that. And the ones that do, the platforms that do embrace a more open environment will benefit. Because that is what people want. They want to be able to communicate. They don't want to feel censored and silenced or that they're um, you know, their usage or their ability to digest content is being dictated upon, dictated upon them. People don't want that. It doesn't matter if you're American or whatever you are. It's called uh, freedom. And I'm um, pretty sure people like that. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Talk to you next week. I'm out of the hot water. Uh, I don't feel like I burned myself, but, uh, you know, I don't know. You never know these days. Have a great day.